You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Emily Schultz on the show with me today. She has a phenomenal new book called Little Threats that's out, available everywhere. Uh, It actually came out yesterday when you're hearing this, uh, today when we're recording it. And uh, what a phenomenal book. I know you're going to love this one. Uh, Welcome to the show, Emily. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you. Um, Emily, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Okay, well, um, my father wanted to be a writer. My mother was always telling me this. I was about four years old, and I decided, well, that's what I'm going to be. And my mom tried to teach me how to read. I didn't know how to read yet, but I had decided the story was important. My father was an English teacher and my mom had also uh, done her MA in English. And so I knew I wanted to be a writer and reading was so challenging. I was like, my mom tried to teach me before I went to kindergarten and I tore a page out of the book. And I was like, how am I going to be a writer if I can't even read? I was so frustrated. (laughs) <laughs> I love that. Um, so did you did you go on to uh, to to continue to write? And were there ever moments where uh, maybe an adult in your life, a, a parent or teacher recognized the storytelling gene in you? I think that everyone knew I wanted to tell stories. I mean, I was pretty dedicated to it. Um, I would tell stories to my father and make him write them down. And uh, I kept notebooks throughout grade school. Um, I had lots of teachers that were really encouraging. Um, I just always wanted to be a writer. So it uh, it just made sense. And then I went to college and to creative writing and did a BA in English. And it's been that the whole time. <laughs> when a- after college, after going to pursue an education that would seem to put you on this path, um, what did you do after college? Oh, it's funny that you should ask because, um, you know, I had an English degree, but it was just a BA and um, it was not from uh, the best college out there. It was just a, you know, a working town college in Canada, actually. And um, I decided that I wanted to try the United States. My parents were both from Michigan, so I had dual citizenship and Almost randomly, I moved to Richmond, Virginia, and that's where this novel, my new novel, is set. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's an interesting setting. What I know, you said almost randomly, but the almost there. What what led you to Virginia? Uh, so I have relatives in Richmond, and um, my cousin happened to have a room in his house. You know, he was also post college and uh, sharing with you know, another guy and they had an extra room and they said, okay, come, you can have like the first month free and then you'll pay rent. And so I went and I got a job working in a stationary shop in uh, Richmond's uh, Cary town, which was kind of the trendy area at the time. It was uh, 1997. And um, I still have family there. My brother actually came down and moved in with us and we had too much family in one house. But I mean, that 
those years were really influential in terms of, I think that was when I really got serious about writing, even though I had always been serious about it. I was reading a lot more and doing my first readings. And, uh, you know, I think uh, just spending a lot of time alone and kind of studying craft by myself. When you say that you really decided to get serious at this time, was there a catalyst to that? Or was it just the idea of, you know, college is over, it's time for me to really make my mark on the world? Was it one of those things or was it a, a particular experience that that prodded that? Well, I think I was working in retail and I think a lot of kids, once they've had this experience where they've gotten their education, um, you know, there's that moment where it's like, well, what am I going to do with my life? And um, so I started writing a lot and started sending out to literary magazines. And then um, I wound up going back to Canada for a little while and doing a course in publishing and wound up working in publishing. So I still work doing freelance editing, um, which helps bring in, you know, bring in some rent money now and again. And uh, but we wound up coming back to, to Brooklyn. So I've hopped back and forth between the two countries. But I mean, that just felt like the moment where I realized, am I going to do this or not? And the answer was yes. So as working as an editor uh, and now working as a writer, and, and I know you probably get asked this question a lot, but um, it, has one influenced the other or shaped um, the other? Do you, do you have more empathy as an editor uh, also being a writer or? Um, you know, does it does it sharpen your uh, your editing knife more than ever? Uh, well, I want to think I have more empathy. I want to think that I'm like cheering on anyone who's writing. I'm reading. Um, certainly, you know, I've I've read a lot, so it, it helps you learn that you can't you can't take too much time to get where you're going at the beginning of a story. The reader will give you more leeway later. If you want to wander about a bit, which I do like to meander sometimes, but at the beginning of a story, you really have to um, present the reader with all the information they need to decide, is this the story for them? And so that is something that I've learned from editing, um, editing short fiction, editing novels, editing nonfiction. And um, but at the same time, I still need a good editor. And I was really lucky that I had one with this book and uh, I'm really grateful to my editor, Daniel Dietrich. You know, I've heard from lots of writers, um, and and one in particular stands out. Uh, Brandon Sanderson, the the fantasy writer, talks a lot about when you're writing your first draft, turning off that internal editor inside you, so that you just get the story out. Because then you can go back and edit the story that you've written, but you can't do that if there's not one written. Um, as someone who works as an editor and a writer. Is it more difficult to turn off that internal editor or do you, you know, do you believe that advice at all about turning off the internal editor? Well, I think you do have to turn the internal editor off. And um, a lot of times what I need to do is if I sit down to write, I need to just uh, focus on what I'm going to the scene I'm going to start and not go back over the material I already created, because I find that that can really delay you and it can make everything take longer if you just start rereading and then rewriting what you already wrote. So I have a tendency to write a first draft really quickly if I can, if I can find the time in my schedule. Um, and I'll sit down and just write and write and write for weeks on end if possible. And, you know, only come back out to do whatever work is necessary, you know, to continue to support my family. But, you know, as much as I can, if I'm doing a first draft, I want to be in it and just I think the other thing is that you have to continue to feel that confidence 
Um, if you don't have confidence when you're writing, it really isn't much fun. But if you have confidence when you're writing, it's almost like ecstasy. I mean, it, I'm always surprised when I hear writers talk about procrastination and, you know, uh, hating writing almost. Why do I do this thing that I hate? And I don't understand that because to me, it should be about that thrill. I mean, it should be fun and thrilling. And so if I can sit down and do it and I have the time to do it, then I really love it. So, I mean, I just want to get as much down as possible while I can and while I have that confidence. It's when you start doubting yourself that maybe it starts to be one of those things that you hate or you're becoming self-critical. Right. Um, how did Joyland Magazine come about? So I, I began Joyland. Um, my partner and I were doing a lot of traveling and um, promoting our work. And we were, you know, like I had a little PT cruiser at the time and we would just pack it up and drive. So, you know, we would drive from Toronto to Chicago and, you know, we think we flew to L.A. And we were peering in on these other scenes of writers we'd never heard of, often with the small presses. And it was just so exciting to read people we hadn't been exposed to. And so I was also really jealous. My partner is um, like a multimedia artist and he has a lot. He always had a lot of interesting things on his website and I didn't have an interesting website. And I was like, I want an interesting website. <laughs> and, uh, so it was jealousy. And uh, we decided to take my website and turn it into a magazine that would show all these different communities. So the idea being that, you know, you can read writing from L.A. or you can read writing from San Francisco or writing from, you know, Atlanta, Georgia or New York and just kind of dip into different scenes. I love that. Do, do you feel like um, uh, as someone from Canada or, or in, and went to college in Canada, having American parents who settles sort of in the the American East Coast South? Um, do you feel like those those regionalities um, are, are, are really um, prevalent in, in the types of stories that we tell? I think that people tend to read local a lot more than we think. And I think that's a wonderful thing. But I also love reading people from elsewhere. Um, you know, so, I mean, when I was in Canada, I really wanted Americans to read me because I was like, guys, I'm also American. I'm American, guys. Hi, I'm over here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I mean, that was part of it, too. Um, but I, I, I think it's really interesting. I do think that story is, you know, there's definitely a flavor to um, work from different regions. And I do love seeing people. I do love people seeing uh, seeing people support one another. I mean, the thing that I really loved about working on Joyland, and I should say that I'm no longer the publisher. I'm, I'm in a backseat job to the magazine now. Uh, it's run by a wonderful woman, wonderful writer named Michelle Lynn King. But the thing that I love seeing was just the support that people would give each other. It almost started to feel like a network. Both Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. 
We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels, along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden cost, no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com A hitman with a conscience. Ian Bragg is paid to kill people. Only bad people and not many, but for a great deal of money. Case the target. Make the hit. Move on until he meets the woman with sparkling green eyes who changes everything. A few pre-readers had this to say about Ian Bragg. Mark Dawson, million-selling thriller author, says a rip-roaring ride from start to breathless finish. Craig Martell hit a home run with the operator. The taut, lean prose and lightning-fast pace make this a page-turner without sacrificing an ounce of story or depth. You'll find yourself rooting for the hitman main character as he faces the toughest decision of his career. The Operator is the start of a new thriller series I expect to see burning up bestseller list for years to come, says A.C. Fuller, author of the Crime Beat and Alex Vane media thrillers. Suave, romantic, and lethal, Ian Bragg is everything you want in a highly paid assassin. Can't wait to ride this train, says James Blatch, self-publishing formula. It's been a long time since I fell this hard in love with a book, a very long time. Author of Women of Wine County Romantic Suspense, Terry Wells Brown says, Grab this book from Craig Martell, The Operator. I love that. Um, your your first book that was published, The Blondes, um, which went on to be uh, to be a scripted podcast, which is fantastic. Um, how did this story come about and what was going on in your life when The Blondes came about? Uh, uh, so the blondes, I mean, I wrote it the first year we came to Brooklyn and, um, it's, um, it really, it's for anyone who hasn't read it. It's, it's a very strange story. It's, um, it's about a rabies like virus that affects only blonde women and makes them rage out and kill. Um, (laughs) yeah. So, I mean, it's a satire. It's a, it's a literary thriller. It's a satire. It's humorous. It's scary. And um, I think it was really a response to what was happening in the world at that time. And in particular, things like militarization of the police, which we were seeing in Canada as well as in the United States um, with, you know, techniques like peddling and whatnot and lots of racial profiling, which, you know, is obviously still with us today. And so, I mean, that's why it is a dystopian novel. And so it's dystopian, but there's this strange element to it. Um, and I, I think I was just trying to process everything that was really occurring in the world at that time. You you described it as a uh, a literary thriller. What what makes a thriller literary? Um, <laughs> and 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 as opposed to you know regular thrillers, what what is that distinction for you? <laughs> um, I, I guess you know the the characters. Um, we tend to get a, a more a psychological look at them. Um, the language tends to be a little slower and a little more poetic. I think that I'm definitely, I'm learning how to be less slow in how quickly I move a plot. Um, with this book, I like to think that I've learned to speed it up a bit. Um, 
So, you know, there's a little bit of navel gazing that goes on with Hazel and the blondes. <laughs> That's, uh, you know, we we make these distinctions between literary and commercial. And um, you, you talked about the the speed or the pace of the story. Um, it, is that something that that genre fiction writers could learn from the literary crowd to to slow down? a little bit and and do more characterization um you know do we have to be these warring camps i don't think so i mean to me i when i go to fiction i'm just looking for a story and right. the story the story i think itself should dictate uh how quickly it moves or how much focus is on you know one character or another um and i think that those things kind of come organically when you're writing i mean i don't consciously set out to i didn't consciously set out to write this one as more of a thriller um, than the blondes. Um, the blondes was just, um, you know, it had a broken timeline and two locations uh, that it flipped between. And so I would say that that technique made it possibly a little more literary where with this one, you know, there is a bit of a broken timeline in that some of it takes place in the nineties and some of it takes place in 2008, but mostly we join the characters and we're on their journey with them from the first page. We're not, when we go back in time, it's just in a recollection or a memory, um, you know, I, but I don't think that I set out to say this one will be a dystopian or this one will be a satire and this one will be a thriller. It's kind of just like I have this idea for a story and I really like this character. And what, what should happen? Who is this person and who are the people around them? And do they trust each other? And, you know, I mean, uh, I think we always want a story to be entertaining. and so. At the end of the day, that's what I hope is that it's entertaining. I'm I'm fascinated by the beginnings of things and as, especially stories because um, you know storytelling is one of these these enchanted things where we have whole worlds that literally come out of nothing out of your imagination. Um, you, you talked about a character being um, uh, you, you know the thing that you first start thinking about. Is that the way stories always form for you? Do they begin with a character? Is it ever a plot point? Is it ever a setting or does it focus around these people? No, I, it, it can be either. So, I mean, with the blondes, it's a concept. I mean, the blondes started because I had this idea of what if blondes, instead of being the most desirable people, you know, uh, were considered the most terrifying. Right. And so that was a concept book. Um, with little threats, it did kind of, for me, start with the characters in that I wanted to write about twin sisters and I wanted to, um, have them be very different. So one of them has lived her life, uh, outside of prison. The other one has been in prison for 15 years. And are these people, you know, where do they come together and where do they diverge? Um, so it just happens that for this book, I think it is more about the characters than it is about the concept. But with the blondes, it was definitely the concept. And sometimes, sometimes it is the setting too. Um, like, I mean, in this novel, we talked about Richmond, Virginia, but I mean, the nineties are also like a big component in little threats, um, because it's when the girls were coming of age and when the, the murder in the story actually happens. And I wanted to look at that time period and what it meant to be young then. So, uh, on Amazon and, and different, um, um, book pages, uh, your, your publisher has, has, uh, put together this marketing copy and there's a, there's a blurb there that it starts with, 
um, that I love for this book, uh, both a taught whodunit and a haunting snapshot of the effects of a violent crime. Little Threats tells the story of a woman who served 15 years in prison for murder, and now it's time to find out if she's guilty. Um, did, it, it, is that, uh, you know, were those, those concepts um, uh, prevalent in your mind when the, when the story began? I know you said you want to tell the story of, of twin sisters. But what what about this uh, this murder and the you know the the idea that maybe she did it maybe she didn't how did that come about for you? So when I started the novel, I thought no, she definitely did it, and she served her time. And what does it mean to come back into society and you know kind of reintegrate and also to join society so long after something happened that the whole world feels like it's changed. Um, you know, 15 years is a long time, especially the the digital and technological advances between 1993 and 2008 and the way we began to live our lives almost completely on screen in between that time. Um, but when I first started, I didn't know. I think I thought that she had done it. And then when I got further in, I thought, well, what if what if there's doubt as to whether she did it or not? And what if she doesn't even know? Um, so. It started as one thing and then it did kind of morph. And then that's actually, I think, when more of the, the thriller elements came in and the idea of trying to solve a crime that someone has already had a sentence for, you know, but maybe the crime isn't finished. Maybe there are um, still things to come to light. The, um, the book is told from multiple perspectives and, and different character viewpoints. Um, what were some of the challenges of telling a story from different viewpoints? and uh, and not only challenges, but what did that give to you as a writer? What sorts of tools did that add to your toolbox by being able to look at the story from different camera angles, if you will, at different people's experience? Well, I mean, it's a lot of fun. Um, Carter and Kennedy, because they're sisters, they're very similar, and yet they've had different experiences. Um, so I liked being able to write Carter, who's, you know, Kennedy is the one who to prison and she's she's quite hardened Carter is a little softer but at the same time she's lived through the same things as her sister but from the other side so for instance what is it like to be related to someone who the media has you know made a big deal over and they're you know loathe what is it like to be related to that person um what is your life like and also what do you remember of that time and how is it different um, there's also Everett, who is the younger brother of Haley, the girl who dies in the novel. And I really liked writing him because there were a few things that I could do is one is, um, I decided to let the, the twin sisters be from a fairly affluent family. And then Everett and Haley are from a, definitely a less well-off family, much more working class family. And that's something that I could write very well, um, coming from, uh, you know, my family's from Detroit and uh, I grew up, you know, in just on the other side of the border. Um, very working class, very working class upbringing, even though my parents were white collar. Um, so I really liked writing his side of things. Also, you know, to look at what happens after you have a violent crime, how much grief is left behind. And that was something that I could bring in through him and through his mother. Um, but the other thing is, is if you have a lead character like Kennedy, who doesn't necessarily even remember whether she committed this crime, then you need characters who are more reliable. 
So I didn't want to just have it be her story because I was like, well, then the reader won't know what's real, especially if she's high in half of like, you know, the flashbacks to the 90s. Um, so I needed to have some characters that were grounding. And, uh, you know, her father is one of them. Uh, you know, he's uh, in his 50s and he's preparing for his daughter to come home for the first time in some ways. You know, their family also lost a child because their child went away, right, for 15 years. So I just kind of wanted to look at those dynamics and allow each character to bring a different piece of the puzzle. Um, having finished college in the 90s and, and kind of setting out on your own, uh, you definitely had 90s experiences. Um, so when you're writing this, I, I don't I don't want to ask. What sort of re research that you did to, for the 90s? Because you obviously lived it. But were there things that you did to kind of with this time in your life? And, and what did the 90s mean for you personally that kind of bled over into the book? Well, I didn't wear a flannel shirt while I was writing. <laughs> uh, did you even live in the 90s then? I did. I did. If you go to my, if you go to my Instagram today, I'm putting up a video of myself in all my nineties fashions. Putnam books just shared it. So it's a lot of fun. I did do some vintage shopping and I found some things that are from that era and decided to see if I could try those looks out again. Um, some of them That's are more amazing. successful than others. But while I was actually writing, I, I wasn't dressing like the nineties, although the nineties in fashion is so back. Um, <laughs> I, I, I did listen to quite a bit of music, Nirvana and Radiohead and Tori Amos and Sonic Youth and L7 and Belly. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting snapshot of the time. There was so much hope and also so much apathy. Was, um, I think there, there are these conflicts. There's this conflict in the 90s of people pretending they don't care, but also deeply caring. And, you know, especially if you were a young person. Um, so it was fun to reconnect with all that. At the same time, I wanted to look at how we change, you know, and how we grow up and become, you know, more responsible in our lives. So like these characters are doing a lot of drugs, which I may or may not have done when I was young, but I certainly didn't need to get high to write those scenes now. <laughs> um, you know, um, the other research was, um, I, didn't need to do a lot of research into into prison life because not much of the novel is set during her present time. But I have family members who have worked in prison system. Um, I have an aunt who taught literacy for decades and a brother who works in uh, uh, as, as a corrections officer. Um, but I, I did want to look at her you know, improving herself while she's in prison. So I brought out these creative writing assignments that she does. And that gives us an intimate look at Kennedy and her voice and what she remembers and what she doesn't. And I mean, I think there are a lot of, of prisoners who are actively trying to learn and improve their situation um, by taking courses. So I thought that was, you know, that was something that I wanted to bring in. I know that your time in Virginia was was very special to you um, as you talk about it glowingly, um, but you no longer live there. You live in Brooklyn now, as we mentioned. Um, why did you set the book back there? And what was it about this place and this time that that lured you back? Well, it was an interesting time. I mean, coming from, you know, Canada and the Midwest, I would say Canada and the Midwest would be kind of how I define. Coming from there and then going to, you know, uh, the South, 
uh, was unique. Uh, it was unique. And I worked, um, I, as I said, I worked in Carytown and it was, we had a very wealthy clientele. It was really, um, the disparity in wealth was, I think, what was most interesting to me, which is not particular, you know, to Richmond. It's, it's true of a lot of, a lot of cities in the United States that you have states that you have a wealth disparity and Canada also. Um, but that was something that I thought I wanted to write about, which is why I have the Kimberson family and uh, the Winds. And the Winds are sort of in this uh, suburbia where they're trying to always make themselves better and always make themselves appear uh, like they're leading the way in some way, um, competing with their neighbors and whatnot. Um, and I think that's true of the suburbs all over, though, not just Richmond, but it definitely was a way in for me. So, I mean, some of the some of the setting is fictional. Some of the places are fictional. The suburb that I that I mentioned, Blue Heart Woods, is definitely fictional. And um, and and then other parts are real. So, I mean, I wanted to have like a real city setting. You mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that when you began Little Threats, that you had a very particular vision for how you wanted the or how you saw the story unfolding um it and, but you sort of alluded to that 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 changed in the writing um what's the difference in how you originally saw the story and what we have in our hands now with little threats so um you know, I think that what happened was uh, the mystery part of the book spread out a little bit more after I had been able to do more rewriting. Um, and, and it's become, you know, a more plot based rather than character based uh, story. And, and that just happens, um, you know, with um, that just happens as, as you edit yourself and as you are edited. Um, so, I mean, now we do spend most of the novel trying to figure out what happened with the crime. And I think that you know, um, Kennedy's redemption is another part of it, but it's not necessarily the only part. We're also trying to figure out who killed Haley and will they get their comeuppance? Are, are you, uh, do you put yourself in the camp of, of a pantser or a plotter? Um, and, and I, you know, the question around that is how much, how much of, of the book do you know before you start writing or how much of it is kind of born in the writing? For me, a lot of it is born in the writing. Um, I really like to follow a story and let it come out organically. And the characters kind of tell me what they need from me. I know that sounds strange, um, but it's sort of like I'm just following them and seeing where they go. Um, usually I know a few things, but I mean, on first draft, I didn't necessarily know um, who had who had done this. And then by maybe 70 pages in, I kind of knew. And then I had to go back over my first 70 pages and make it not so obvious. Um, but usually I'll know a few things along the way. I'll know kind of where I want to want maybe one thing from the middle. And other than that, it's it's me just seeing seeing what happens. I love it. Um, when you finished Little Threats, were you surprised by how the story wrapped up uh, I, I don't want to give anything away obviously but um did it take you by surprise uh you know the ending didn't totally take me by surprise because i knew one of the things i wanted to happen and uh and it's one of the big ones so i can't say it 
But there were some things in the middle that totally shocked me that I had no idea I was going to do. So I don't want to give that away either. But there's a slight supernatural element that comes in. And that was a surprise to me. And I I wrote the scene where that happens. And I said, oh, my, what did I just do? And then I said, am I going to keep it? And then I decided I would keep it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. When when people read the book for themselves and they get to that part, they're going to they're going to be like, oh, I I have an inside look to that. Um, <laughs> the book Little Threats is available everywhere today, uh, no matter how you read, either in Kindle edition or physical copy or audio book. You can get it uh, today as, as you're hearing this. Go grab Little Threats. By Emily Schultz. Uh, Emily, if people are just learning about you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? Uh, they can find me almost anywhere. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can go to my website, which is emilyschultz.com. And Schultz is seven letters. It's S-C-H-U-L-T. Love it. Uh, we'll send everyone to see you and to pick up a copy of Little Threats. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy day to join us uh, today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hank. On an isolated human planet called Phoenix, outside the Galactic Gate Network, a royal empire teeters on the brink of revolution. The new emperor is weak, the old guard seeks power, and a hidden slave cabal manipulates the great and small houses alike. None of this concerns Simeon Brazhnev, newly appointed steward to one of the most powerful heiresses on the planet. Happy to let the royals play their age-old game of catch the crown, Simeon is more concerned with balancing his mistress's books than worrying about affairs of state. But when Simeon discovers evidence of sedition at the highest levels of government buried deep within her finances, he realizes her great peril. Though a slave, he finds himself trapped in political intrigue, desperate to protect his mistress from the royals who would see her dead and the slave rebels who would make her their pawn. Agonized by the choice of turning her over to the authorities or protecting her secrets, Simeon decides to keep faith with his sovereign over his larger duty, thus flinging himself into a world of power, plot, and assassination. If he fails, they both die, and with them the chance at freedom for Simeon's enslaved race. Set in the Salvage title universe, Salvage Mind is the first of three novels in a new breakout series. Available in ebook format and paperback, Grab your copy today, Salvage Mind by David Allen Jones.